calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving god, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. of the world. My job in this world, at least as I see it, is to retain memories, to preserve history. Not my memories, or my history, though. It's in the items I collect that I find meaning and purpose. When I was in my early 20s, still pursuing my childhood dream of becoming a great American author, I was devastated to hear about the death of my hero, Saul Bellow. Bellow wrote those novels I held close to my heart, the stories around which I built my identity. And when he was gone, I felt like a piece of me had died too. A glint of excitement came, though, when I learned that some of the items from Saul Bellow's estate were being auctioned. I drove to Chicago for the auction, but was frustrated again when I saw how expensive all the lots were. His writing desk, his early letters, some of his favorite works of art, they were all for sale, but the price tags attached were well beyond my budget. I sat through the auction, watching piece after piece sell for astronomical amounts, until, finally, I saw my chance. A small clay pot was the next lot, and with most of the present buyers satisfied with their purchases, nobody seemed interested in the pot. I ended up winning the highest bid for the price of only $40. It was only when I went to collect my purchase, though, that I learned it wasn't from Bellow's estate at all. It belonged instead to one of his colleagues at the University of Chicago. I was annoyed with myself, but it was too late to back out. I had to pay for the clay pot, whether it belonged to Bellows or not. A few weeks later, I learned that the pot was actually once the property of a noble Japanese scholar, and that its value was indeed much higher than the $40 I'd paid for it. I sold it to a private dealer, thinking my days of purchasing literary memorabilia were over. But that, of course, was not the case. 
The years went by, and I found myself buying and selling everything from Gertrude Stein manuscripts to a pair of Dennis Johnson's glasses. Collecting allowed me to live in the present. I had no past, only the past that my artifacts came from. And I had no future, only the future value that my collection would incur. Like many collectors, though, I've been taunted by those certain items that are so rare they teeter on the cusp of non-existence. Like Captain Ahab and his great white whale, I'm forever searching for those invaluable items, the ones whispered about within the walls of haughty literary societies and in the lobbies of elite auction houses. But one artifact, for me, stands above all others. My great white whale is the fabled typewriter of one Sigmund Burroughs. Burroughs was a writer of occult horror fiction. He lived the life of a hermit, writing his terrifying tales at his house in the woods of Connecticut. And, like many writers, he had a favorite typewriter. It was a royal quiet deluxe, the same typewriter Ernest Hemingway used. Only Burroughs, according to legend, had his custom painted an unnerving shade of red. The mere sight of the machine was known to make people nauseous. But that's not the only peculiar detail about Burroughs' typewriter. There are those within the occult horror community who believe the machine had a mind of its own. According to the diary of Burroughs' housekeeper, the typewriter was said to move around the house seemingly on its own accord. It would disappear from one room, only to reappear in another. And on the rare occasion that the house cleaner tried to move it for cleaning, she claimed its surface would either be searing hot or, more commonly, ice cold. On one occasion, she got the regrettable idea to lay her fingers upon the keys, to feel the surface on which Burroughs conjured his genius. But... As her finger rested upon the key, she felt a sharp prick as a needle-like protrusion rose up from below the keyboard and lanced her finger. She never so much as approached the machine again. Another oddity that surrounds the typewriter was Burroughs' own strange death. Though there are few documents that detail his demise, these few facts are known. Sigmund Burroughs was found hanging from the upstairs balcony of his Connecticut home. His hands were tied behind his back, leading to speculation that he hadn't done it to himself. The rope from which he was hung was looped over the balcony's banister and led through the open door to his study. The rope's end was tied around his beloved typewriter, which sat atop his writing desk. When she found the body, his housekeeper could not understand how the typewriter, which only weighed 12 pounds, was enough to suspend the weight of Burroughs' body. His mass should have tugged the machine clean off the desk and sent him plummeting to the garden below. But somehow, anchored only by the weight of the typewriter, he hung, swaying in the autumn breeze. Before she had time to figure out what was suspending him there, his housekeeper cut the rope, letting him fall to the ground below. She hoped there was still a chance of saving him, but, alas, there was not. Sigmund Burroughs was dead, as dead as the cursed characters he wrote about. Naturally, suspicion was cast upon his housekeeper. 
Her role in the matter was investigated, but there are no official court documents detailing the investigation. We know only that she was eventually cleared and went on to live out the remainder of her days in quiet solitude. The mystery of Burroughs's typewriter would only deepen, though. When he was buried, his estate was evaluated so his records could be archived. It was only when the journal entries he had written in his last days were uncovered that the archivists began to see just how troubled he'd become. The journals were handwritten, and minced no words explaining how Burroughs had taken to writing by hand because he was afraid of his typewriter, was convinced that it was self-aware. In shaky, terrified script, he detailed the last work he had undertaken on the typewriter, a work that would go on shaping itself until long after his death. His final novel was called The Edge of the World, and while he left no details as to what the story was about, he did say that after a certain point, the story began to write itself. By this, he didn't mean that the ideas were coming effortlessly. He wasn't being metaphorical. He literally meant that he wasn't the one crafting the story, that the typewriter itself had taken control of the narrative, and was writing the story with apparent autonomy. In his final dictation, he fears that the typewriter will go on conjuring the terrifying tale long after he's dead and gone. He had, it seemed, foreseen his own death coming. The journals were grim and frightening, but Burroughs's publishers saw them only as dollar signs, an ingenious marketing pitch. They sent the manuscript to his editor and began crafting ad copy that announced The Edge of the World as a novel so scary it drove its own author insane. The book would never be released, though. Burroughs's editor would work on the manuscript for only a week and a half before decrying the work as a cursed product of witchcraft. He claimed the story never ended, that each time he neared the end, a handful of new pages would appear at the bottom of the stack. It was, as he saw it, an eternal horror story, reaching his claws deep into the mind of the reader and refusing to ever revoke them. The publisher thought their editor was spouting nonsense and served him with a strict deadline by which the book had to be ready for print. But before that day came, the editor disappeared, and with him, the manuscript. As a collector of literary artifacts, I was obviously enticed by Burroughs. His strange manuscript and the fate of his enigmatic typewriter were things I vowed to pursue for as long as my legs would carry me. But no matter how many auctions and literary conventions I attended, these items remained obscured, hidden by a shroud of mystery. I wondered, fleetingly, if the answer to my search lay hidden somewhere in the pages of one of Burroughs's books. Already a fan of his work, I reread many of his old titles, hoping to find a roadmap to the artifacts in his words. Like many authors, Burroughs had a favorite protagonist, around which dozens of his books were based. Just as Nathan Zuckerman was for Philip Roth, Bianca Lacar was the vehicle Burroughs used to guide readers through his stories. As Burroughs wrote in one of his journals, Lacar is my faithful chaperone to the underworld. 
She takes my readers by the hand and wistfully leads them into the dark domain of my imagination. I studied Bianca Lacar, her words, her mannerisms, her character, wondering if she was, in fact, based on some real figure in Burroughs' life. Perhaps she was based on his housekeeper, I thought. And maybe if I could track her down, it could lead me to the cursed typewriter and the supposedly endless manuscript. At a gothic literature conference in Ontario, though, my search was turned on its head. I finally caught the break I was looking for. While listening to a lecture about the implications of the occult in American horror, the man sitting next to me noticed the ragged Burroughs paperback sitting in my lap. It was a book called The Reek of Blood Smiles Upon Me, one of Burroughs' most famous titles. The man to my left asked if I liked it, and I assured him that I'd read it upwards of a dozen times. He nodded in agreeance, turning back to the lecture. If only we got to read The Edge of the World, he whispered after a moment had gone by. I thought the comment queer, especially since very few people even know about the legend of Burroughs' final book. He must have seen the intrigue in my eye, because it was what he said next that truly shocked me. What if I told you I knew where it was, he whispered. I wanted to believe he was full of shit, but the confident grin on his face told me otherwise. I'm listening, I said. It was all I could say. He stood and suggested we walk into the lobby. It was there that he told me most of the borough's estate, including his mythical typewriter, was sold to an anonymous buyer some years ago. When I asked how he knew that, he grinned, explaining that he was part of the team entrusted with transporting the items to the property of the buyer. He doubted the new owner would want to part ways with the typewriter, but he offered me, under the assurance that I wouldn't tell a soul where I'd gotten the information, the address to which he had delivered it. I was exasperated, almost shocked beyond words. I was inclined to be skeptical of his claim, but there was something genuine about him. He knew too much about the Burroughs estate to be pulling my leg. I knew almost everything there was to know about the mysterious writer, and this stranger knew at least as much as I did. That much was apparent just talking to him. Eyes wide, I gazed down at the address written on the piece of paper he had just handed me. It was a secluded ranch in Montana, he explained. And while he had never made direct contact with the buyer, he was entirely confident they lived there. I drew back, suddenly uneasy. What do you want in return, I asked. For this. He thought, and for a moment I expected him to ask a ludicrous favor of me. But in the end, he simply said, Maybe I just want the truth to finally come out. From one fan to another, if you know what I mean. In all honesty, I didn't know what he meant, but I couldn't think of anything to say other than, thank you. So with that, I began planning my trip to Montana, a trip that, in time, would reveal more to me than I ever cared to know. The address was located near the remains of a small mining town called Lackland. 
I arrived in the dusty Montana town after a day and a half spent cramped behind the wheel of my car. I was exhausted, could think of nothing I wanted more than to check into the small hotel in town and go to sleep. But before I did, curiosity got the best of me. I decided to drive by the ranch at the address I'd been given, hoping to see if it was occupied, or, more desperately, to see that it was even there at all. When I arrived at the gravel road that led to the property, I felt a familiar sense of unease tug at me. It was the same feeling I got when I read a Burroughs novel, that feeling of being watched, of being loomed over by something vast and indescribable. I parked my car and walked along the gravel path until I reached a fence that surrounded the sprawling single-story house. Indeed, I could see that there were lights on in the house, and while I didn't see any movement from within, the place conveyed a sense of occupation. No, not occupation, exactly. It was more like presence. As if merely by looking at the house, I was witnessing something anomalous and jarring. Something around which this edifice was built. Not to provide shelter for its occupants, but to protect the world from whatever lay inside. Though its construction was relatively new, its pristine roof shingles glimmering in the fading light, the stout wooden pillars that supported the awning lacking any sign of rot, it seemed to me like a place that was very old. Ancient, even. Though I couldn't have said exactly what made me feel that way. Perhaps it was the rustic layout, or the barren plains that surrounded it. More likely, though, it was my own exhaustion that led me to see the residence with that distinct sense of primeval dread. So, without taking so much as another look at the house, I turned and walked back to my car under the burgeoning blanket of stars. When I arrived at the hotel, I was put off, to say the least. Though it wasn't the accommodations that disturbed me. They were homily and old, but would suit me just fine for my trip. No, it was the sight of the concierge that I found so unnerving. She was an old woman of tiny stature, her wrinkled, claw-like hands drifting around the surface of the desk, and one of her eyes drooped terribly below the other, as if it were melting out of its socket and dripping down her cheek. I tried to appear respectful and gracious, but I found myself unable to look at her for more than a second at a time. When she finally handed me my room key, I disappeared from the lobby and went promptly to my room. There I found a small bed, made with a faded quilt comforter and fitted with an unforgiving pillow. There was an old TV in the corner and a small bathroom with a linoleum floor and rusting fixtures. As I drooped to turn on the shower, something caught my eye. It was a sequence of words, two sentences to be exact, scrawled into the cracking wallpaper. Underneath what you can see lies a hidden world, a place which is void of meaning, defined only by its sharp and constant infliction of suffering. It is at the precipice of this world that I bow, at its gates that I find absolution. I recognized the words almost immediately. They were taken directly from the reek of blood smiles upon me. But what were they doing there? 
I recoiled from the realization, feeling not for the first time like I had been led to that place, but to what end I didn't know. When I finally collapsed onto the bed, sleep came quickly, but that's not to say it was restful. My dreams were plagued by visions, too real to be fantasy and too terrible to arise in reality. The only part I could remember was when I was standing in a field next to a tall, looming oak tree. A full moon hung in the sky, and it cast vibrant light over my surroundings. As my eyes rose to study the tree, I realized there was something in it, hiding among its branches. It was too large to be a bird, but too dark and unshapely to be human. It moved slowly from branch to branch, with clumsy, disjointed movements, as I stood paralyzed, watching from the field below. I realized, too, that I could smell the figure. It smelled like death and rot, its pungent odor assaulting my nostrils as it clambered through the tree. Its myriad joints seemed to crack and pop as it moved, and each time it released a branch from its grip, a dark film of liquid was left behind, as if it was emitting some ungodly secretion. I tried to break free from my paralysis, to run, but my body would not respond. I just stood, helpless, watching the monster's slow descent through the branches. When it finally reached a branch low enough for me to see it clearly in the moonlight, I could see that in a span of a second, it had transformed. It was no longer hideous. Its odd angles were rectified by shapely joints and its putrid, oozing surface was replaced by gentle skin. It was a child, I could tell. A young girl. She seemed to be reaching down to me, as if to be asking for help out of the tree. I finally regained control of myself and took a step towards her, towards her small, outstretched hand, her locks of brown hair swaying in the light of the moon. But before I was within reach... The tree suddenly and inexplicably burst into flames. In an instant, the entire trunk was engulfed in flames, glowing violently and sending plumes of billowing smoke off into the night. I jumped back, startled by the sudden heat, and found myself powerless as I listened to the agonizing screams of the small girl now being devoured by the flames. She cried, cried as her skin sagged and melted, as her hair singed and her face blackened. I forced my palms over my ears, trying to block out the hellish noise, but there was no defense against her cries of agony. And then, I noticed, the sound changed. It elevated in pitch, until it was no longer a cry or a scream, but a spastic, innocent laugh. She was giggling, uproariously, riotously, seemingly entertained at the heinous deformations her own body was undergoing. Or perhaps it was my agony, my helplessness, that so tickled her. But soon I, too, was screaming, and then laughing to the music of death, to the onset of immolation and putrefaction, to the disgusting transformation I was witnessing. And then I awoke bolt upright and sweating profusely in the small hotel bed. For a moment, the shock and terror persisted 
and I gaped at my upturned palms as if I expected them to burst into flames. It was only when my hyperventilating subsided that I realized it was dark outside. The pale moon cast a lambent glow across the parking lot outside the window. At first, I thought it was still that night, or perhaps the early morning. But it was only when I checked my phone that I realized I had slept not only through the night, but the entire next day as well. The darkness I was seeing was that of the following evening. How did I sleep for so long? I wondered as I tugged my pants on. It had been my plan to return to the ranch that day, when the creeping dread of the place wouldn't petrify me. But seeing as I had slept the daylight away, I had no choice but to return under the darkness of night. After a bite to eat and a much-needed beer, I took the short drive back to the desolate ranch. I parked my car in the same place as I had the night before and stepped out onto the gravel drive. It was cold, cold enough to see my breath in the moonlight, and I was shivering, but I didn't think it was entirely from the temperature. Some part of me knew that it was anticipation from which my nerves arose, that imminent dread I was sure to experience once I laid eyes on the solitary house. When I reached the fence that surrounded the house, I rested my forearms on it, hoping to quell the tremble in my frame. For a moment, I stood in silence, propping my weight against the fence, trying to decide my next move. I would have to approach the house eventually, knock on the door, if I wanted answers, that was. But something inside me was reluctant. Even though I'd driven halfway across the country to arrive at that remote Montana ranch, something halted me, suspended me in place, kept me from going any further. I listened as I stood there, hearing a faint rustling in the breeze, and then there was movement. It felt abstract at first, and then I realized it was something below me that was moving, something connected to the fence itself. I thought it was a snake, slithering its way up the fence post, or perhaps some kind of insect. But no, it was the ivy growing on the fence itself. It was moving, as if under some kind of control. It first wrapped itself around my pant legs, working its way towards my hips. Then it was encircling my wrists as well, gripping my arms in an ever-tightening grasp. I screamed, tearing myself away from the insidious plant and ripping its vines from my body. But in doing so, I also gave away my position. My sudden cry had apparently awoken the ranch owner's dogs, because furious barking ensued and then the porch light clicked on. I turned to leave, keeping my figure low as I crept along the gravel road back to my car. Then something stopped me. I heard the door slam shut, and immediately after, someone loaded a pump-action shotgun. The sound made my blood run cold. Don't move, somebody called out. But, to my surprise, it wasn't the harsh, deep voice of the rancher I'd expected to encounter. It was a woman, her tone soft but assertive. I heard footsteps crunching through the gravel, but I didn't turn to see who was approaching. I just stood, waiting, a sheen of sweat breaking out on my frozen palms. 
And then there was a tap on my shoulder, the cold steel of a gun barrel urging me to turn around. I slowly rotated where I stood, and my eyes met the face of the woman before me. She was slender, her face bordered with long strands of black hair, her fingers confidently gripping the shotgun. I expected her to confront me with anger and suspicion, but upon seeing me, her features softened, as if, in some way, she recognized me. I'm sorry, I said, my eyes falling to the ground, arms raised at my sides. What are you doing here? she asked, her voice assertive but not malicious. I'm just... I stuttered, keeping my hands raised. I stalled, trying to concoct a lie that would sufficiently justify my presence on her property. But nothing came to mind. The shotgun barrel still pointed at my face made it impossible for me to think. I heard that you have his typewriter, I said. Sigmund Burroughs. At some point, I had decided that the truth was my best option. I'm a collector of literary artifacts. I was wondering if... My voice faded out. I didn't know what I was wondering. Didn't know my plan at all. The shock of my present encounter made it seem absurd to suggest any sort of business transaction. She lowered the gun slowly. Would you like to see it? She surprised me by saying. Well, yes, I replied, not knowing how else to respond. She turned and led me back to the house, her long stride setting a pace that I struggled to keep up with. I felt a tinge of fear at the prospect of entering the house but my nervousness was outweighed by my excitement at finally seeing the typewriter, Burroughs' typewriter. I had spent years searching for it, and now my moment had finally come. As she led me through the door to the house, I was met with sparse furnishings and a dim but well-kept living room. She leaned the gun against the counter, taking care to turn the safety on before she set it down. I lifted my arm and dabbed the sweat from my forehead. She set one foot on the staircase, preparing to ascend, but then stopped and half turned. How did you find me? She asked, still not entirely facing me. I froze for a beat, trying to figure out what to say, but before I could muster any words, she went on. I guess it doesn't really matter, she said unenthusiastically. You're here just as we knew you would be. I froze, scrutinizing the words in my head, trying to grasp their meaning. But she didn't wait for me to come to an understanding. She took the stairs two at a time, disappearing into an upstairs hallway. Afraid of being left behind, I went after her. When I turned the corner at the top of the stairs, I saw a narrow doorway that opened into a small, dimly lit office. She stood in the corner, head bowed, hands folded in front of her. I slowly approached, eyes drawn to the shiny red typewriter sitting on a wooden desk in the middle of the room. Sitting in the typewriter was a sheet of paper, its text half-written, as if someone had just taken a break from writing it. Carried by weak legs, I took slow, tentative steps towards it. When I got close enough to read the writing on the page, I stopped dead. Having slept through the whole day in a storm of unthinkable dreams, 
He rose and hurried out of his hotel room. The paper said, What is this? I found myself asking before I lowered my eyes and read on. As he approached the lonely ranch house, his nerves awoke too, stirring in anticipation of the dread he had felt the night before. He parked his car and began his walk down the dark gravel drive that led to the house. His breath rose as steam in the cold, and a shiver emanated from somewhere deep in his gut. But some part of him knew that it didn't come from the frigid air that surrounded him. I slammed my palm down on the desk, nearly striking the typewriter. Is this some kind of joke? I demanded. Some kind of sick joke? But the woman did not respond. A ream of paper sat on the desk next to the typewriter, the pages filled with blocks of black text. I lifted the top sheet and held it to my face. Upon entering the lobby, the hairs on his arms prickled, and an indistinct chill ran down his spine. The concierge, he saw, had a facial deformity. One of her eyes was hideously displaced from its socket, its pale clouded shape sagging into the flesh of her cheek. He found himself unable to make eye contact with her, and busied himself with a sign-in sheet as he waited for her small claw of a hand to slide the room key across the desk to him. My trembling fingers released the sheet of paper and it floated to the floor. My eyes were wide but unseeing, unable to comprehend what was in front of me. I turned to the woman, still standing passively near the wall. Tell me what's going on, I demanded. A nefarious smile broke out over her face, her cheeks bright with amused condescension. You really haven't figured it out, she asked dryly. Figured what out, I bellowed. Figured out that someone's following me, writing about my life like it's part of some ridiculous story? She fell silent at this. After a moment of thought, she spoke again. Do you know who I am? she asked. It was only after the words left her mouth that I realized the typewriter's keys had been clanging along with each syllable. I jerked my head around and read the most recent line of text. Do you know who I am? Bianca asked, seeming to grow impatient with his refusal of the terrifying truth. No, I cried, shrinking away from the typewriter. Bianca, Lacar, you're, you're a fiction, I stammered. And so are you she asserted. How much of your life can you really remember? Do you even know your own name? I froze, gripped by a sudden terror, begging this horrific situation to be nothing more than a dream that I was bound to wake up from. But it wasn't. It was glaringly real. I drew my hands to my face, stifling a scream at the realization that I was nothing more than a puppet, a plaything conjured by the dark imagination of a madman. The edge of the world was a real story, and I was its protagonist, the helpless captive of a never-ending narrative. I crumpled to the floor, listening to the clack of the typewriter's keys as it dictated my demise. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. 
Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.